Mark Isaacs visited Kabul in 2016 and met Insan. He went back in 2017 and has written Insan's story in a book called Kabul Peace House. It's a very moving story of a man working for peace in a country torn apart over centuries by the wars fueled by global superpowers fighting for control of resources, mostly oil. And today I want to explore that story, Mark, but also your own story, because I think that you too are an intrepid peace worker, taking <laughs> great risks to bring the truth about many issues, but maybe mostly the inhumane treatment of refugees. So I'll try to cover both these stories. I suspect they're completely interwoven, yours and the Kabul Peace House story. But could we start with a brief introduction to you? You describe yourself on your website as a storyteller who connects people with issues all over the world to encourage and facilitate action. Can you flesh that out a little bit more for us? Sure. Well, I think, it, it, you know, my kind of career in working with people seeking asylum in humanitarian crises um, as a community worker and as a, as a writer um, and more recently as a photographer and a researcher began Back in 2012, I was um, I just graduated from the Bachelor of Communications, and if anyone has ever done that degree, you kind of come out with it not really knowing what you're going to do. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was uh, doing a writing internship with Oxfam, and I came across this young woman who um, I was interested in, and she told me her mother took people to Villawood to visit, you know, people seeking asylum in the detention centre. And I said, oh, I love people singing a song. I'd love to help out. Yeah, let me get involved. And I had this idea that I could, you know, meet the mother, meet the girl. Um, and that set me on this, this path, uh, which was, you know, I went to Villawood and was shocked by what I saw, uh, you know, meeting people, hearing stories like these um, of refugees for the first time, seeing people who were suffering in detention, who hadn't been released for years and were waiting for a, a bureaucratic system that had no kind of logic behind it and questioning what, you know, what was happening? Why were we doing this? How is this happening in a country that as a 24-year-old, I had always been told was, you know, believe in human rights and upheld justice and um, equality for all. So I, it was a really um, confronting experience for me and it set me on a path to write a piece about that experience. But then that piece then reached a large number of people, including friends of mine, who eventually, when Nauru was opened in 2012, said, hey, the Salvation Army are hiring people to work in, in this detention centre. You should apply, like you're interested in this stuff. Uh, and that was a way into that world, which had previously seemed really difficult to kind of get access to as a person who'd um, studied a communications degree and didn't really know how to get into humanitarian work. You know, so so I, I called up the Salvation Army. They had a, I think it was a Facebook ad and there was a phone number on it. And so I just called and said, you know, I'd like to work in Nauru. And they said, sure, when can you leave? Uh, and then a week later, I was in Nauru, or a week or two later, I was in Nauru. And that really was uh, the, the beginning of it all. Um, and I think there was always been a desire to do this kind of work, but these were the, uh, the, the door was open and I took my opportunity. And so I worked in Nauru for a year. After that, I, you know, once you hear about my experiences in Nauru, you'll see that I was quite affected by that. And so was my, um, my colleagues and all the people I work with in Nauru. And so I ended up writing a kind of whistleblowing account of my time there. And that was published in 2014. And that kind of opened the door to the writing world. And then since then, 
I've been able to use both community work to influence my writing and writing to kind of influence where I take my my travels and my um, my interests. So I've been to countries all through Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, um, the Middle East to find out where these people are coming from, what, what these places are like, and to better inform my knowledge of the refugee debate in Australia. Um, I've been to Manus Island. I've written the book about Afghanistan. I'm now doing a PhD on people smugglers. So that's kind of, yeah, set me off on this, this wild and fascinating path, which I'm extremely grateful for. Firstly, it exposed to me that the Australian government has a very cruel system and it purposefully sends people to these detention centres or these, you know, prisons in horribly inhumane conditions and we do it on purpose. We, we really subject these people to all sorts of inhumane punishments there. Um, and so that kind of set me on that path. But it also exposed me to all these incredible people and wonderful stories of people who are doing everything they can to make it to Australia and, yeah. Well, we'll move back to that in a moment, but just wanted to ask you about using photography to raise awareness and to support community action. Particularly, I'm interested in the exhibition called Imagining Peace, a portrait of modern Afghanistan. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your other exhibitions and how they do, quote, encourage and facilitate action? You know, I originally I was a writer. And I first began photography as a way to kind of capture the worlds that I was uh, visiting and the countries I was seeing and the, the people I was meeting and the cultures I was experiencing um, to help me with my writing, to help, you know, when I come away from there, have these documented images to help me visualise the places and also to support um, publications in, you know, in magazines, online magazines, newspapers. And then in the past probably five or six years, um, and it was particularly with Afghanistan, you go to Afghanistan and you realise that the images that you see in the majority of media, in movies and TV series, it's, it's a very warlike scenario in Afghanistan for whatever reason. And, and so the most of the, the kind of pictures in my mind of Afghanistan was, was associated with conflict and invasion and um, and war. And so arriving there, I immediately was aware that everything I was seeing was different and new to me. Um, and I have connections with the Afghan world. I have known refugees, uh, one of my dearest friends and his family, Afghan. And so I had that world there in Australia, but I still didn't have real images of Afghanistan that, that was associated and, and linked to what I was seeing. And when I was researching and writing the book with the community about their peace activism and their attempts to bring peace to Afghanistan. When I first arrived, I thought, wow, this is incredible. What a unique story. And it is, it is an incredible and unique story. But when you actually start delving into that world, you realise there's a thriving and active uh, civil society in Afghanistan. And this group was one of many peace groups and one of many organisations trying to build communities, trying to build peace there. and in Australia, we don't know what's going on in Afghanistan at all, really. You know, when we we're doing the research with the Edmund Rice Centre, a lot of the Australian NGO workers don't know what's happening in Afghanistan because they're stuck behind blast walls in these embassies due to the dangers of the conflict. But we were out there, you know, catching taxis and running around and getting in private cars and things. And, you know, so we, we were exposed to all these different images and visuals. And so while doing writing the book, I was capturing these 
incredible pictures you know there's there was the women doing martial arts there was the you know beautiful scenery of the mountains of central afghanistan and it was like nothing i'd ever seen before and i thought you know there's some people learn from some writing and then many people learn from visuals and you can capture so much of the desire for peace from this young woman you know joining a martial arts class with the the hazara bruce lee learning how to self-defense and which is a, a thing that no longer exists in in taliban controlled afghanistan you know the capturing the smog over kabul and the desire for people to try and rebuild the country through green energy and through um removing pollution from the country that's a, that's a desire for peace and you can see that the the, the nastiness of the, the smog which which causes so much illness in afghanistan and this this world that gets hidden behind the kind of iron curtain yeah you know your love of the country comes through and the people comes through very powerfully in your art so let's move then to talking about the book explaining who is Insan and how did you meet him? Well, Insan is the founder of a community of peace activists in Afghanistan, and they were a multi-ethnic community that had both Sunni and Shia Muslim sects, had men and women, and they strive for uh, to build a green, equitable, non-violent world without war. So uh, nothing too ambitious. <laughs> and, you know, I was in Kabul researching um, deportations to Afghanistan and what happens to those people when the Australian government deports them with an NGO called the Edmund Rice Centre, who have been doing these investigations for a number of years, um, because the Australian government doesn't. And um, newsflash, it's very dangerous to deport people to Afghanistan. It was six years ago, and obviously it continues to be now in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. But in doing those this research, one of the researchers, um, a man named Martin Roish, who's a very dear friend of mine from Nauru, he introduced me to this community and Insan. Um, and, you know, the first night we went into this little house where they had a, a living community where people were learning to live together with different ethnic groups, which is um, an extremely brave and almost like radical thing to do in Afghanistan um, because there's so much conflict between ethnic groups and Muslim sects. So these people were really challenging military, political and social hierarchies there. Um, and it was quite dangerous for them to be doing this. And up until the Taliban took control, they were doing it for close to about 13 years. And, you know, that night we arrived, they were discussing philosophies of Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I later learned that these were young men who, before they met Insan and joined the community, some of them didn't know how to read. Some of them have never met a foreigner before and were, you know, scared of foreigners. Others said that if they'd met another ethnic group, so they were Hazara and they were, if they'd met a Tajik person in their community, they could have come to blows. Many had been previously fearful of Pashtun people because they were associated with the Taliban. And then conversely, many Pashtun people were fearful of Hazaras because they were told they were their mortal enemies. And so you had this incredible community spirit there of trying to rebuild Afghanistan. Insan was the founder of this group and he was a young doctor who'd um, been working in Pakistan with Pakistani refugees. And he had a personal experience with a young man who ended up leaving and trying to seek asylum in Iran. And Insan became extremely worried for this young man who he became his friend and, you know, thought of him joining a madrasa and becoming a terrorist or what people perceived to be a terrorist. And he wanted to understand how that happened and he wanted to help rebuild Afghanistan and prevent these young people from, you know, joining conflicts and becoming involved in these, these, these groups. And so he set about starting a peace community in the mountains of central Afghanistan while he was also working as a doctor trying to improve health conditions for the people there. 
essentially what he learned was that of all the health problems he'd witnessed there and tried to treat there, the biggest issue was that people um, wanted their loved ones to stop dying and they wanted the conflict to end. Uh, and so that's what he set about doing. And he went about that through those philosophies, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, of rebuilding society through constructive peace work, building schools, teaching people to live with each other, conflict resolution. One of the strengths of this book for me, and I must say that I read it in small doses because to process not only the facts, but more importantly, the emotions of sharing this journey needed digestion spaces, was the way that you used the personal stories to flesh out the history of Afghanistan over the last decades. I really learnt a lot. I'm just interested in how you tied that into this book. Much of this was kind of um, not new to me. And, you know, I knew that the Soviets invaded and I knew there was civil war and I kind of knew the origins of the Taliban, you know, as, as religious students who were resolving this, this awful civil war and, um, you know, with perhaps quite altruistic motives at the start. But um, on a personal level, on, a, on a, an experience level, there was so much that was new to me and their voices were so strong and powerful and so my intention was to help them tell their story. And so those chapters written from their perspective are very much their word. They are incredible young people. Insan's one of the most phenomenal people I've ever met in my life with oratory skills that would match, you know, some of the most incredible peace workers in the world. And their ideals were powerful. And, and what struck me was a lot of what they're saying you can think of as being idealistic. And then you hear their personal journeys and you realise this isn't idealism for them. This is reality. This is, this is the only path they want to take. And the dangers are great and they will risk their lives for that. And so in terms of talking about the, the history of these people, the time I was interviewing them, 16 or 17 or 18 or 20, or the kind of histories dating back into the Russian conflict, there's so much that is revealing in the personal um, so you may know that the Taliban invaded a certain area, but hearing Hoja say that, you know, they'd sleep with their shoes on because they knew that the Taliban might come and they'd have to run in the middle of the night to go up the mountainside and hearing about running up the mountainside as bullets are firing across your path and you can hear the bullets and you can kind of feel the, you know, the, the fear in the people, that adds a whole new element to what people think of as conflict. And so, yeah, there was an incredible amount that was new to me. And then also just the complexities of a country like Afghanistan. It is one of the most complex countries in the world, the, the complexities of the conflict, but the, the length of the conflict. And so trying to understand that, it was always going to be better coming from their perspective. And, and, and can I just say um, the reason why they asked me and wanted me to, to tell the story was um, when someone tells a story in Afghanistan, it can be passed off as, oh, well, that's a Pashtun person. That's just the Pashtun perspective. Or if it's a Hazara person, the Pashtuns say, well, we're not going to listen to that. It's just a Hazara idea. And so they asked me, they wanted me to tell the story as a perceived neutral observer. This book covers a group of young Afghan men, some women, over about 16 years from 2002. We can only sketch that out. People will have to read the book or listen to the podcast, but maybe a couple of standout peace-building projects in that story for you. In keeping faith with the book, the best way to kind of tell these peacekeeping successes or projects is, is through the individual stories. And so 
Hoja is a, is a really good example. She was a young woman born in the mountains of central Afghanistan, expected to kind of marry and have kids age 12, 13, as per the, the custom in the rural parts of the country. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted to go to university. She wanted to get educated. She wanted to get a job. And that is a very challenging path. And it challenges all sorts of kind of familial structures. And that's some of the biggest risks, of the, particularly to young women joining this community was familial pressure to, to not do this kind of work. But the community gave her encouragement to go study in university in Kabul. But even then, her experience at university was quite disappointing. It was only once she'd kind of been involved in the community, she started to, you know, meet young people discussing all sorts of, um, you know, wild ideas like peace. And she learned to communicate with different people from different ethnic groups, with young men as well as young women. And she became a leader in that group. And then years later, a young woman joined without her family's permission, which is a pretty daring act, because she'd heard a rumour that this community existed, got there and was exposed to this world of young people interacting and discussing all these, these ideas. And what stuck with her was she saw Hoja, who was so confident and so brave, speaking in front of people, expressing all these ideas. She said, I want to be like that young woman. Uh, and Hoja has inspired so many women to be her. She became one of the leaders of the community. And just through the teachings that she had at that community, she's become a, a role model. Once pretty much all these young people have a chance to live in something like safety to get some education, formal and informal, the depth of the trauma that they've survived begins to show. And it's hard for them to keep going, to keep changing they have to seek some security in some way. Can you talk a bit about that? So I think there was this really interesting point where when they go to India, they've given this wonderful opportunity to go to India to work with another kind of like-minded community. And many of these people have never travelled outside of Afghanistan. And it was the first time they got an opportunity to experience the joy of travel and compare their life in Afghanistan to a peaceful country or a relatively peaceful country like India. And I mean, among the many observations um, Hoja made, for example, for things like there's all sorts of different houses of religion that doesn't exist in Afghanistan because it's a pretty much a, a monoreligious country. But, but among those other kind of observations, she said there was something that was like at the back of her mind that she couldn't quite work out what, what it was that was kind of, you know, just there. And then after a few days, she realised she wasn't fearful that she was going to be bombed or killed. And she ended up having this incredible experience in India and absolutely loved it. But one of the things that challenged her was that the, her family were back there and that she would have to go back. Just because you can leave a country doesn't mean you're not tied to that country and what happens there and all the, the family that you have there. And so for, for Hojar, it exposed the wonders of a new world and the challenges that you'll always be linked to the Afghanistan that you were born and raised in. Yeah. That does take me to my final question, which is what you would say about the Afghan refugees who made it to Australia and about those who are still struggling to survive in that country, which you got to see as not only war-ravaged but as beautiful, the 2022 situation. Yeah, well, I think it's just one of the the more tragic experiences I've had from afar, witnessing it from Australia and just seeing the demise of, not that this was just a one day coming, this has, been, this has been something that's been happening since the US invasion 
there was a brief period of the kind of golden era of you know money coming in but overall the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan has thoroughly been assessed as doomed from almost the beginning and to see it kind of fall apart and the, the promises made to the people of peace prosperity and democracy and freedom and now those people who believed in it and tried to live that are now exposed to the Taliban and um, have been left there without being evacuated, without being supported or resettled by the Western community, by Australia. Um, you know, we allocated a certain number of places and then immediately never actually resettled anyone and then immediately transferred the priority to Ukrainian refugees. Um, and it's no surprise that they're white and European. So Afghan people have not been prioritised. They've always been pushed away. They were the the excuse used to instill the Pacific solution to prevent them coming by boat, even though we invaded the country on the promise of freeing the people from the scourge of the Taliban. And now we're seeing them being forgotten again. And so it's, it's tragic, but it's also a reflection of the way we approached this invasion from the very beginning, which was never to actually assist and rebuild the country. Although there were obviously many well-meaning and good-minded people who did try and do that in Afghanistan, but as a overall goal of the of the Western powers and the, the coalition of the willing. Um, and then for the people who were here, I mean, what journeys they've been on to make it to Australia and the lucky few who have been given settlement visas are now actually just on temporary visas. None of them have, since 2012 have been given permanent protection. So even if they've been found to be refugees, they will only be given temporary protection and that will always be reassessed and they may be sent back to Afghanistan if the government deems that to be safe to do so, which they have done before and it has led to people dying in Afghanistan who have been persecuted by the Taliban. So I don't have much faith in our governments to protect these people. Um, on top of that, we have people imprisoned in detention centres offshore and onshore who are Afghan, who are fleeing a regime that's just re-risen again. So our treatment of the Afghan people in Afghanistan and in Australia has been appalling for the last two decades. And Given the opportunities, the majority of people I've seen and worked with have been doing amazingly well, but unfortunately we are not giving them much of an opportunity. That does take me to my final question, which is, do you see the work that you do as service? Yeah, without a doubt. It's a service because, you know, we're part of communities and in communities you have responsibilities and rights. And for me to, to present this, this story to places outside of Afghanistan, but also to people within Afghanistan who want these stories to be told, want positive peace stories to be told about Afghanistan. Many of the people in this community will never have that opportunity. They'll never have the platform, never have the English skills to have these stories expressed. And so it's, it's a service to current day communities, but it's also a service to peace communities all over the world from eras that have already existed and eras that are to come because they're ideas that we're communicating aren't their ideas. They're ideas that have existed for millennia. They've existed in our most ancient religions, our most ancient societies, and they've been replicated in different time periods, in different cultures, in different societies throughout time. And so these are universal concepts. And so as Insan said, just because they don't achieve peace in Afghanistan by building these communities and by enacting these philosophies, it doesn't mean that the philosophies won't continue to exist so even though the community is facing all these challenges with the Taliban right now, there are people starting up new communities in Germany and Canada in Portugal that we've managed to get people resettled to and they're flourishing and they're, they're growing. So, you know, you nurture a garden and it will grow.